The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. In August 1988, a serial rapist had already struck twice in Dayton, Ohio, claiming three victims. The victims' descriptions of the assailant, as well as the event itself, were almost identical. The assailant pretended to be a security guard at a shopping center and accused the victims of shoplifting before using their cars to drive them off into the woods to be orally sodomized and assaulted. He called himself Roger. A composite sketch finally generated a long-awaited lead. Roger Dean Gillespie was identified as a possible match by his direct supervisor at work. Although he typically went by Dean, all three victims identified him out of a photo lineup and again later at his trial, sending him away for up to 56 years. So it seems like that's all there is to this story. But this is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. If I sound a little more sprightly than usual, it's because of the guy I'm going to be interviewing who's got this infectious energy and smile and has just transcended this insane ordeal that he went through. So I am really excited today to have my friend Dean Gillespie on the show. Dean, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you, sir. And with Dean is the co-founder of the Ohio Innocence Project. Dean's case was their very first one. So we're very happy and honored to have Mark Godsey here with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. And of course, the other co-founder was John Cranley, who went on to become the mayor of Cincinnati. But before all that, he worked to free innocent people like Dean. So let's go back in time with you two, Dean. Your story is one that really needs to be told for so many reasons, from police misconduct, to judicial misconduct, to what took place at your trial, where more than half of the jury was ready to acquit before turning around and convicting you when they obviously had reasonable, more than reasonable doubts, and then only for you and Mark to then turn this whole thing around and make history in Ohio. But before any of this happened, you had like a really good life. 
Well, I grew up in a middle-class family. My dad worked at General Motors. My mother was a beautician. Lived in a great neighborhood where the friends that were around me, you know, I knew my whole life. It's a beautiful place to grow up for me. It was like I was like Beaver Cleaver. What town was that in? Fairborn, Ohio, where the airplane was invented. I actually started working when I was 15 with a friend of my dad's. He was a contractor. Then I graduated high school. My dad wanted me to go work at General Motors, which at that time was one of the best jobs in America. You know, you get a GM, you were set. You know, my dad was in the union, so he knew the right union people to get me the job at the GM plant. I was going to the community college for fire science technology to uh, basically to get the job, which was a plant protection at General Motors when you're basically a fireman. So put in the applications, you know, bam, there I was with a job at General Motors at 18. I mean, that someone could get a job out of high school that would have them, you know, pretty much set up for life. Situations like that were dwindling in number even back then. So this was really a valuable position you had, which sort of inadvertently made you a target for a particularly unscrupulous person. What we figured out during the course of this was the boss at GM, which is a management non-union. This guy was the head of security to five different plants in GM and Dayton. And he had a friend who he wanted to get the job. Mm -hmm. So he don't like me now because I got the job. And this guy was just stirring up crap with me and harassing me and just, you know, talking down to me and everything. But, you know, subsequently we come to find out that he was so mad about it. We've proven four times in federal court that he was taking my information from General Motors to the police department he used to work at where his buddy was the head of the police department trying to get me hooked up on something. Wow. Because it's a union shop, you just can't fire somebody because you don't like them. You have to have, you know, some kind of reason. That reason would be me getting locked up and not showing up to work. And this sinister fuck's name was Richard Wolf, who then did what he had already done previously when he heard about the crimes we're about to talk about. Now, this was August 1988. There were two gruesome sex crimes, one on August 5th, and then the second one involving two victims was on August 20th. The second one was reported first, though. There were 22-year-old twin sisters. We're going to call them CW and BW. This is around 7, 7 p.m. as they were getting into their car outside of a Best Products store in Dayton, Ohio. And they were kidnapped by a lone gunman. He then said that he was a store security guard and his name was Roger. Yeah, so the perpetrator sort of accused them of shoplifting, had a gun, and said, you got to come with me. Pretending like, you know, I'm going to take you around the little, you know, mall cop police station we've got here or whatever. Um, instead, he takes them off into the woods. When they got there, he exposed himself, fondled their breasts, and forced them to perform oral sex on them. He then blindfolded both women and forced them to lie down in the back seat while he drove back to the Best Products store. So there were some distinctive things that the perpetrator said and did. Specifically, he would say things like, you know, I'm a contract killer for the CIA. I get $1,000 per hit. He had cigarettes, you know, was smoking. He mentioned at one point how he does this to women because he was molested by his grandfather when he was 12. He said he was from Corpus Christi, Texas. At one point, he said he's from Columbus, Ohio. He then fled with money from their purses as well as a lighter and a pack of cigarettes. Now, here's the thing. Like, these women reported this assault to the police. And around the same time, a 28-year-old woman who we're going to call S.C., totally separate incident, reported that a man wearing sunglasses and armed with a chrome handgun abducted her. Same M.O. on August 5th. 
Yeah, what happened is uh, SC read the newspaper report of what happened to the twins. You know, once she read the similarities, she decided she was going to come forward. This woman said the attacker got into her car when she came out of a store in a different shopping center. This guy identified himself, according to her, as a security guard and said his name was Roger. He ordered her to drive behind a vacant building where he fondled her breast and forced her to perform oral sex. So it was pretty clear to the police that the same guy was responsible for all three victims in both events. Were rape kits done? Was there any testing done on any of this type of, uh, you know, whether serological or other biological evidence? The BW and CW case, there was rape kits done on. We know that for for sure. You know, they collected semen on the sweater of one of the victims. There were hairs that were collected. You know, unfortunately, this was in 88, you know, before really DNA testing was known and, and widely used in criminal investigations. So the items in question that the perpetrator touched or might have deposited biological material on were given back to the victims by the police. So any chance for DNA testing was sort of ruined. Right. But no one even knew that until much later when the Ohio Innocence Project got involved. But in the immediate aftermath, there were these hairs that they would eventually try to match with suspects by using hair microscopy, which is a well-known junk science. But they've actually got to find the suspects first. So they relied on a composite sketch from the detailed descriptions that they had received from all three victims. And the descriptions were consistent. Yeah. So they were very consistent, all three victims. So he had his shirt unbuttoned and you could see this big like rat medallion very dark tan. This was August. He had acne along the jawline and he had very specific color of hair, brown with a reddish tint. And they described him as tall and kind of a big guy and something like between 180 and 250. I think there was a pretty broad range. The pant size that they, one of them provided was smaller, would be a guy more like, you know, 180 pounds, 200 pounds, something like that. So Dean, did any of those very specific details match you? No, they said the guy who attacked him had a dark suntan. I'm very Irish. I burn and I go back to white. You know, the person who attacked him did not have a hairy chest because the medallion, I got a bear suit on, I'm covered in hair. The person who attacked him had severe acne scars on both sides of his jawline. I did not have any of that stuff. The person who attacked him did not have a cleft chin. I've got a cleft chin. I started having gray hair on my temples in the 10th grade. Which is a feature that the victims would have mentioned had it been you. And also, I understand that you have always hated cigarettes. I absolutely hate cigarettes. My dad smoked most of my life, and uh, I could I can't stand the smell of them. So why am I even being looked at as a suspect? And you had no idea that your boss, Richard Wolf, had it out for you this bad. I mean, on its face, the only thing about this crime that has any connection to you was the name Roger. Now, your full name is Roger Dean Gillespie, but you've always gone by Dean. But by the time you had been considered for this crime, a lot of time had passed by. The case had gone cold. So since it wasn't fresh in the headlines, do we know what prompted him to try to bring you in? No, he says that he's seen a newspaper article on a bulletin board in the plant, and he went down and said, hey, check this guy out. And the first time that he went down there, he was seeing the detectives who were in charge of that case when it very first started. So they knew the case inside and out. They looked at my DMV, my driver's license, and seeing that I didn't fit the description at all. They knew the pant size. And when they looked at the height and weight on me, they knew I couldn't fit in the pants 
which I always say one time in my life being fat was good for me. Well, at least it should have been, yeah. <laughs> right, you would think. Yeah, so, you know, they'd done a little write-up on it and disregarded me as a suspect, and that was the end of it, you know, with them. Yeah, so, you know, Dean was eliminated as a suspect. Time went by. The detectives on the case who eliminated Dean retired, moved out of state. After they left, my boss, his best friend, who was the chief of police, the chief's son was a detective now. So my boss, he went back with the same information and said, check this guy out. I think that when he was talking to this young new detective, with him being a ex-police officer and, and understand how the system worked, he was able to convince him that he was working on the right track and in the right guy. Detective Scott Moore, 26 years old, takes over the case and the file eliminating Dean disappears. We don't know what happened to it. He just decides, I'm going to go out and show the victims a photo spread with Dean in it. And, and, you know, you look at the photo spread, it's clear that the other five came from the same source. Dean's was glossy and the other ones were matte. He's got a different color background. Um, the victims had described the, the perpetrators having a wide face. So the picture used of Dean is like his face is taking up the entire square. So it makes his head look really big and his face wide. Whereas the other five are all like back, more like torso shots. And so if you look at it, you go five of these are fillers. Which one doesn't fit? (laughs) Clearly it's this one. First off, I have no animosity toward the victims in this case because they were done wrong and they were lied to just like I was. And you got to remember this case is two, two and a half years old. And studies show that you know, when it's a stranger rape, your ability to identify accurately decreases steadily from the time it happens and is essentially down to chance by 11 months. And so you're sticking a photo spread up in front of somebody two years after the fact with an extremely suggestive lineup. And that's a very dangerous situation. Yeah. I mean, they were re-victimized, right? It- but now with the victims identifying you, they had what they needed to get an arrest warrant. Even though, as we've already mentioned, other than the name Roger, you and the assailant had very little in common. It's why the initial lead detectives eliminated you as a suspect. And there's more that they discovered that should have eliminated you again. But tunnel vision and, well, perhaps maybe the detective Scott Moore feeling some kind of twisted obligation to his father's best friend may have been why they continued their pursuit of you, Dean. I mean, when did you first find out that you were being targeted in this way? I got a letter called a demand letter to come into the police department. And because I'm a dumbass, I went in and he questioned me about these incidents. Where were you at on this day? Which was two years before. Who knows where they were at two years ago? But because I didn't know, he felt like I wasn't answering his questions. So weeks later is when they came to the house. They tore my house apart. You know, there's supposed to be a gun involved and everything else. I didn't have guns. Uh, there was no clothing or anything that even even came close to the type of attire this person was wearing. Okay, so you're arrested and taken out to jail. We go through the arraignment and everything. They reduced the bond down enough for me to get out. And I am in a frantic mode to try to figure out where I was at during this time. And I was very lucky enough to have two friends who kept calendars of events. You know, I was in Moorhead, Kentucky on one of the days of these crimes that took place with my friends. We were skiing and fishing and and just having fun at the lake. And the other one, we were uh, with some friends who had came in from college and we were out with them. 
Unfortunately, alibi witnesses are often easily explained away by the prosecution as people who are willing to lie for you, including about your ability to tan. They had photographic evidence of how it would have been impossible for you to tan, but it had no effect, nor did pointing out all the other discrepancies, among so many other tactics. During pretrial, your defense tried to suppress the identifications for the same reasons we had mentioned earlier, which is how outrageously suggestive the lineups were. It's hard to get these things suppressed, even when they're suggestive. We see this a lot. The current case law by the Supreme Court is completely out of date, doesn't reflect science, and that needs to change eventually. But yeah, the, they allowed it in, and they allowed the identification. So I want our audience to take notice here. These are the steps that our guests, usually incompetent attorneys, did not take. That you might be telling yourself that you'd make sure that you and your lawyer would take. But it still made no difference. The judge allowed in the IDs, and the jury was not moved by the alibi witnesses, nor any of the discrepancies between Dean and the assailant, so he was found guilty. But before sentencing, a defense investigator learned that hairs recovered from the victims that were said to have been lost had not only not been lost, but the crime lab had actually tested them against Dean and excluded him. They found some hairs that had been on the victim's sweaters from the August 20th event with the twins, and they did not belong to Dean Gillespie. And so he got a new trial where they could introduce that the hairs found on the victims did not belong to Dean Gillespie. Right. This seemed compelling at the time, but hair microscopy is shaky science at best. You might be able to eliminate someone from inclusion, but making a match with any degree of certainty is total horseshit. It could be said that practitioners of this junk science might be willing to say anything, but this is the state's evidence. And given the opportunity, they still didn't try to fudge the evidence and fix it on Dean. But... The idea that he could simply not have physically been the man they were describing should have been enough on top of his alibi, for which there were over 20 witnesses. So, Dean, what do you remember about the second trial? Things got weird because one of my friends is a pretty proficient smartass. And when the prosecutor asked him, do you know Roger Gillespie? He said, I sure do. And he said, is he in the courtroom? And he said, he sure is. And he said, will you point him out to us? And he said, he's the guy in the back sitting with the gray haired lady, which was my mom and dad, because my name is Roger Dean Gillespie. My whole entire life, the only name I've ever used is Dean Gillespie. My dad is Roger. All my friends, some of them didn't even know that my first name was Roger. So when he got off the stand, the prosecutor went to a sidebar. We had 22 other people to testify for me and complained that all these people grew up with me. They knew me my whole life and they were going to lie for me. And they cut all of the rest of the witnesses on my side. Wow. That's, is that legal? <laughs> it worked then. There was more than just these witnesses that you had an extreme dislike for cigarettes. They had pictures of him before all this happened. Inside his truck on the dashboard, he had a thank you for not smoking plastic sticker, like a bumper sticker he stuck on his dashboard. And he's like the most Irish, whitest guy ever. I mean, you know, you have these pictures of him before all this happened where he's out at lakes with all his friends and they're in boats and they're skiing. And then, you know, they'd be in drinking beers that night and everybody's really tan and he's like beat red, even though he had sunscreen on and a t-shirt. So he, he literally cannot tan on top of that. He's somebody, it's a family trait that had been going gray since ninth grade in high school. They called him the silver Fox and the victims were very specific that it was Brown with a reddish tent. He didn't have a reddish tent and they were asked on the stand, did he have any gray? And they all said, no, there was all this evidence. And sure enough, it resonated with the jury. I think it was 
two days they deliberated and they came out eight to four, eight for acquittal, four for conviction. And the judge told them to go to lunch and come back and study on it some more. They came back out again at eight to four. You know, it's, it's actually kind of amazing that the jury was eight, four for acquittal. When you have three victims on the stand crying who were actually raped and you have all that emotion and they're saying, I'm hundred percent positive. That's the guy that guy's getting convicted. Even if there's all these things that don't match. So, you know, the fact that they were eight to four to acquit at the beginning, it shows you how bad the case was against him. And then the judge gives them what's called a dynamite charge or an Allen charge and sends them back. And this is what happened after that. He said, I have a fishing trip. I don't want to be here. If you don't reach a verdict, you're going to be sequestered until you do, which means you are going to leave here to a hotel, no contact, and we will come back until you reach a verdict. 40, 45 minutes later, they just came back, said all upset Gilly. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Like I say, I grew up in in just a great, beautiful world. And I go into a close maximum security prison where 70% of these people are never getting out. Your life means nothing to them. The violence is overwhelming. 
you know, I've been in bar fights or whatever as a kid, but I've never seen anything like this. You know, when you're in prison and you get into a fight, you are fighting for your life every time. They want to test you as soon as you get in there. What are you going to do? You know, you're going to be a punk and give your stuff every commissary time and everything you own is going to be taken by somebody or you're going to fight. Luckily, you know, I was a big enough guy and I, I was very, very well versed in fighting and, and that helped me a little bit. But you still get your ass beat. You know, I started reading a lot and I started uh, doing artwork and listened to a lot of music and tried to stay out of the way the best I could. And somehow or other you did and you managed to figure out how to not only survive, but to fight, to continue to fight. What was really not, not just an uphill battle, but a virtually hopeless battle. I mean, you'd seen the worst of what they could do to a person. And yet you managed to continue to advocate for yourself. You know, my mom fought and fought and fought and uh, she was not giving up on nothing. So I never lost hope. I always knew that I was coming out of there because I didn't do this. They would file a brief, file a motion, and then, you know, you wait and you get all excited about it. And then you get denied and that crushes you. Then you start talking to these lawyers and they start explaining to you, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. So you, you get a little bit more hope and it's like, well, how long is that going to take? Well, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. So, you know, the years just start clicking off while you're filing these motions and they keep getting denied to the point of, I said, do not send me these motions no more. I don't want to read them. I don't want to see them because I get too hyped up. I just want to get my mind into a state where it's the same every day and not keep doing this up and down thing. I tried to clear my mind every day and then start the next day to be as positive and as happy as I could be every day, just to try to keep my sanity. I'd say you're one of the saner people I know. Maybe I'm missing something. but And then in 2003, you get a break when the Ohio Innocence Project began representing you. Right. So in November of 2002, I got hired as a law professor, teach criminal law at the University of Cincinnati College of Law. But I wasn't going to start until the following year when classes start August of 2003. And John Cranley was a city councilman at that time in Cincinnati. He later became the mayor and he wanted to do something positive with his law degree in addition to be a city councilman. So he was trying to start an innocence project at UC Law School, couldn't get the dean to bite, couldn't get any professors to bite. So I get hired and I have been a prosecutor. By this point in time, I was very bought into the idea that people are wrongfully convicted and we need to make some reforms in the system. So when he approaches me and says, I've been trying to get this school to start one, will you help run it with me? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So we have our first fundraiser Shortly after I was hired, it was November of 2002, and there's some newspaper coverage of that fundraiser. And in January, Juana Gillespie, Dean's mom, before I even had started at UC Law, before we'd officially launched the Innocence Project, she tracks me down, comes to my office with a big box of files and says, you know, you're going to take this case. Starts like pitching it to me. He's my son's innocent. He didn't do this. So it was literally like the first one we were looking into. Our first angle when we started looking at the case in 2003 was to see if there was any DNA to test. And there were some hairs that were collected off of the victim's sweaters, but it turns out that most of them belonged to them. We did do DNA testing on those, but they were irrelevant. They didn't match Dean. They didn't match anybody. Most of them were the victim's own hairs. There was no semen that was actually preserved that we could test, even though there was some at the crime scene. We, you know, we tried to see if there was anything. Again, our history tells us that they'll say things are destroyed, but when you really dig in, sometimes you'll find the semen, even though they said they destroyed it. But in this case, it really was destroyed. There was nothing we could do other than the hairs, which turned out to be uneventful. 
So now, without the easier of the irrefutable smoking gun evidence, seminal DNA in a rape case, you had to buckle in and prove it with a more full investigation. And Dean's case, because it's just so monstrously egregious, there was plenty of it, including a more likely suspect during the initial investigation, which was a guy named Kevin Cobb. So at some point after Dean was convicted, a phone call had come in to, I believe, his attorney's office. Somebody had made an anonymous phone call saying the guy who committed these crimes, his name is Kevin Cobb. It was like a notation to that effect in the file. And this person wouldn't give their name. But they said, you know, I worked with him at a correctional institute, but he's the one who committed these crimes that Dean Gillespie's in. So we start investigating Kevin Cobb. First thing we do is get his rap sheet. He has a history of pretending to be a police officer, flashing a badge and committing crimes. And you start looking into those cases. You know, he's arrested in this year of domestic violence. So we go pull that file. And we can get the name of the, the female victim. So we start going and talking to some of these ex-girlfriends and stuff. And what do we find out? He would get drunk and tell people he's a contract killer for the CIA. Gets $1,000 per hit. He told one girlfriend, I was molested by my grandfather when I was 12. He tells people he's from Columbus, Ohio in Corpus Christi, Texas. In fact, he had been stationed in the Marines at Corpus Christi for a while. Exactly what the rapist said. We talked to people who knew him back at the same time of, of these crimes to the point of going to his high school, getting his senior yearbook, tracking down people that had lived in that town and knew him that were around the same age. We found incidents of him wearing a medallion around the same year, flashing a badge, pretending to be a cop. We found incidents of him using the name Roger. We heard the history of how he developed that fake name. There was a mentally challenged young man in their town named Roger who would walk around town and Kevin Cobb would make fun of him, would imitate him and say, I'm Roger, you know, mimicking Roger's voice. And when he was acting crazy, he would take on this Roger persona. So we had incidents where he would commit crimes, flash a badge and use the name Roger. And then we get a picture of him from 1988 and composite sketches are usually not very accurate, but it looks just like the composite sketch. We found out from the people who knew him that he got very tan in the summer. He was a smoker. Everything just matched up. It was uncanny. An Ohio corrections officer. Jesus Christ. I mean, almost all of the villains in this story are part of the system. And I say almost because not only did the initial investigators, Fritz and Bailey, do the right thing, but now in the lead up to filing the 2007 post-conviction filing, the former Ohio Attorney General, Jim Petro, actually joined Dean's legal team. The main allegations were the Kevin Cobb, but also the fact that the original investigation had eliminated Dean. We were able to talk to Fritz and Bailey, who told us all about the original investigation. They gave us affidavits that they had created reports eliminating Dean as a suspect. They talked about the pant size discrepancy, everything else, that those had disappeared and the jury had never heard about them. So there were multiple claims that we filed in 2007. So things now appear to be looking up. After all, you had the super compelling alternative suspect evidence about Kevin Cobb. In addition to Jim Petro on your team, the original detectives Fritz and Bailey were on board in supporting the Brady claim that all of their work from the initial investigation had been disappeared or gone missing and therefore was not shared with the defense. It seems like you finally really had momentum on your side. The judge that Dean had at that time who had taken over for the trial judge, his name was A.J. Wagner, um, and we could not have drawn a worse judge. Extremely hostile to the idea that somebody could be wrongfully convicted, that eyewitnesses can be wrong extremely hostile to basically us. And we presented the evidence and he denied it outright without a hearing. So we had to appeal. The appellate court 
denied us on the Brady claim, which is the missing file, but said that the judge should have had a hearing on Kevin Cobb. So at that point, the case breaks in half. The Brady claim, since we lost in the Court of Appeals, continues up the appellate chain to the Ohio Supreme Court. And the Kevin Cobb part of it is sent back down the lower step to the trial court for a hearing, which is like a trial. And we'll catch up with the Brady portion of the case in a bit. But first, you've got to go back to the trial court with the Kevin Cobb issue in front of this super hostile judge again. Just to show you what type of judge A.J. Wagner was, there was a whole other part of the case where Dean, on the August 20th incident, was actually camping in Kentucky with friends. And when his investigator had gone down to try to get the receipts to show he had been camping that weekend, they were missing. So, of course, they cross-examined more on the stand during the trial. And he's like, no, I never went down there. I never took those receipts. When it became public, we were working on the case. A cop reached out to us who said, I actually know that he did go down there because he admitted it to me. And we tried to get an affidavit from him. And the, the officer said, I can't cross the blue line like that. I just want you to know you're on the right track. And at that point, I started secretly recording this officer. So when we go to file for Dean in 2007, we attach affidavits saying what this guy had said to us. They file a response and they get this cop to say, I never said that. They're lying, blah, 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 blah. On our reply brief, we go, we got you on tape talking about it. So A.J. Wagner denies us on that claim. Again, we don't have a hearing, nothing. And after it's over and the case goes to a court of appeals, I get a call saying A.J. Wagner wants to have a status conference. I'm thinking, why does he want a status conference? The case is in the court of appeals now. This is like not even his jurisdiction. So we get on this teleconference on the phone. The prosecutor's on the phone and Jim Petro's on the phone. And A.J. Wagner goes, oh, thanks, everybody, for coming together. Um, yeah, I just wanted to get the parties together because Professor Godsey secretly recorded a police officer without his knowledge, which is a federal crime. And I'm letting everybody know that I'm turning the evidence over to federal prosecutors. And then there was this like awkward pause. And Jim Petro goes, uh, Judge, uh, it's not a federal crime to s secretly record a police officer. It's legal in Ohio. And then Judge Wagner goes, Dan, which is the name of the prosecutor, is that your view? Yeah, Judge, I don't think it's illegal. And A.J. Wagner goes, well, I'll look into it a little bit more. And it just hangs up the phone. And I never hear anything about it again. That shows you what kind of judges we sometimes deal with. And A.J. Wagner is about as bad as it gets. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. So the Brady claim was still being litigated in the background as the Kevin Cobb issue was being sent back down to the trial court. And now A.J. Wagner was expected to be impartial when he was being forced by the appellate court to hear all of the evidence that you had compiled on Kevin Cobb, especially after he had embarrassed himself in front of his colleagues and the federal prosecutors he had spoken to about indicting Mark, right? And this guy is your judge. So we had a hearing in front of A.J. Wagner, which is like a trial, that's where we call witnesses. They come and testify about Kevin Cobb. You know, we call these ex-girlfriends, these people that Kevin Cobb had committed crimes against. We talked about he used the name Roger. He flashed a badge. You know, he was very tan. He claimed to be a contract killer for the CIA. All those things I talked about that make an uncanny match from Kevin Cobb to the this crime. And then Judge Wagner summarily dismissed it. So we then appealed that back up to the Court of Appeals. Meanwhile, the half that we lost on, the Brady claim in the appellate court, we appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court, where we lost. At that point, since it was a constitutional claim, Brady, that gave us jurisdiction to take the case into what's called federal habeas. So we filed a federal habeas petition. So this Brady issue, that the initial detectives Fritz and Bailey had ruled Dean out as a suspect and the file was hidden from the defense, they received a hearing at federal court on this issue in front of Judge Michael Murs. Fritz and Bailey testified again about all the physical discrepancies that they had written a report about. The hair, the skin, the cleft chin, the pants couldn't have fit, so you must have quit. In addition, they were suspicious of Wolf's tip, calling it, quote-unquote, particularly unreliable because the composite sketch had been posted at the GM plant since shortly after the assaults. But Wolf only went to the police after a nasty fight resulting in Dean being fired. So they wrote this report about Dean not being a viable suspect, and it was never seen by the defense along with the campground receipts that the chief's son, Scott Moore, never turned over either. And the decision came down on December 16th, 2011. You know, in this day and age, when they issue a decision, they email it. An email had come from the federal court, and I see that we won the case. He threw out Dean's conviction based on the Brady claim. So I immediately drive up to Dayton, which is only about 45 minutes from Cincinnati. I don't tell anybody. And I knock on the door of, of Dean's mom and dad, Juana and, and Roger Gillespie. But I've been a mess for 20 years. Well, we won Dean's case. What? Judge Murs threw out you the conviction. you got to be kidding me. Oh, my God. Come in here and have a seat. <laughs> this is the sound, the heart-wrenching sound of a mother's grief. But it all means that her boy was finally coming home after so many years lost. And it took about a week for you to get out. You were released on bond with an ankle monitor just in time for the holidays. A U.S. Marshal came and got me. It was December 22nd, so everyone was basically shut down and closing up for the holidays. So she picks me up, and 
I'm like, where's everybody at? What, you know, what's going on? She goes right down the road. So we drive down the road to a bowling alley right around the corner from the prison. You could actually see the place from the rec yard on the backside of the prison when you're walking the track. And uh, I go into this bowling alley. All my family's there, all my friends. The media was everywhere. One of them asked me, how does it feel to be free? And I'm like, uh, I'm looking around the room and I knew all these people that were bowling because they were guards from the prison. It was gardens league bowling night from the prison. And it's like, Oh my God, man, am I, am I free or am I in purgatory? It was very much a legal purgatory because yeah, you were released, but you were wearing an ankle monitor and the case had not been officially dismissed. Meanwhile, the other issue, the alternative suspect, Kevin Cobb, that was still being litigated. Now, last we checked, A.J. Wagner had just denied you on that issue, and your team appealed the decision. Four months later, in April of 2012, we went in the Court of Appeals on Kevin Cobb. So he's like double released. He's the only exoneree I know of in the country that was exonerated twice on two totally independent grounds. Like, if you take away the Brady, he still would have been exonerated on Kevin Cobb. If you take away Kevin Cobb, he still would have been exonerated on Brady, and they're totally independent of one another. So he was like <laughs> double exoneration. So the state would have to fight this on two fronts in order to get you back in. And considering the evidence in this, a normal person would just let this go, right? So you guys filed to have the charges dismissed, and that was dragged out until 2015 when Montgomery Court of Common Pleas Judge Stephen Dankoff granted the motion to dismiss the indictment. The state appealed it, dragged it out for another two years to July 26, 2017. So almost six years later, the decision was finally upheld and the case was dismissed. That was the federal side, the Brady violation that was in the federal court, and that's what got dismissed there. And then we had an alternate suspect in the state court. I didn't get officially all the way done until December 9th of 2021. Ten years? I mean, not only your time, but their time, which actually belongs to the taxpayers and the, and the public. I mean, considering all the shit that we all now know about this case, like why continue this charade? And and you got to look at the money. You got to look at the money that was wasted. It was just, you know, wasted on frivolous nothing. It's like, what are you doing? Right. And think of all the better things they could have been doing with their time and our money. You know, I can't imagine that a single one of their constituents wants this done in their name. This was the alternative suspect part of the case. We're not positive that Kevin Cobb was the assailant, but the evidence certainly pointed in his direction. And in continuing to try to maintain Dean's conviction, they just doubled down on letting whoever the actual assailant was go free and stay free. Another thing that I can bet that all of their constituents would be firmly opposed to. But now you've finally been fully exonerated. And there's a bittersweetness to this part of the story. You pursued Miami Township Police Department as well as Detective Scott Moore civilly, right? For the civil suit, in November of 22, we started a week of preparation for the federal civil suit. Uh, we went through a two-week trial. The PTSD was off the charts for me. It was just unbelievable to sit through all that. But we get through it, and, and the uh, judge sent them back to uh, deliberate, and they deliberated about three hours. They asked one question, and that was, do legal fees come out of damages? 
And then we knew, like, oh, shit, they're on the right track. They went to lunch and then uh, came back, uh, set us in the court, and uh, then they got to the money amount um, of damages. <clears throat> and it was uh, it was a shot around the world at $45 million. Yeah, I mean, obviously no amount of money would ever give you that time back. But, you know, it is the largest verdict in Ohio State history, correct? Yeah, I wouldn't do it again for $100 million. You couldn't say in 1991, we're going to send you to prison for 20 years. For $100 million, I wouldn't do it. First, you got to survive the 20 years, you know. There is no way in the world any money, you know, send me back to 25 years old. Do that. You know, keep your money and put me back in that era. But, you know, that you can't get it back. And that was one of my things with the PTSD in the court was when they talked about the amount of time and they would always say, you you can never get that back. And at, while I'm sitting there, it is just like smacking me in the face like, my God, it's gone. It, and it, it isn't coming back. This this here is not going to make that come back. I mean, I've got a lot of things I want to do. I've got car building on my mind. I'm doing one now. Just things like that. I'm setting up uh, a trust for my great niece who's seven, you know, to hopefully, you know, make this money grow into something that would be a, a legacy. But. Uh, definitely going to be supporting our Ohio project. I'd like to encourage our audience to support the Ohio Innocence Project. We're going to have it linked in the bio because without them, Dean would not be out here with us along with so many others. Yeah, I was uh, I was the first case the, the Ohio Innocence Project took. The 14th person we got out, or this is our 20-year anniversary, we've got 39 people out. Well, Mark, you, Jennifer, the whole crew, you're all doing phenomenal work and here's to the next 39 and now we go to the closing of our show so of course this is called closing arguments i love this segment and i love it because it's a part where i get to first of all thank you two for being here and sharing this incredible incredible story with me and our, our amazing audience and so how this works is i'm going to turn my microphone off kick back in my chair with my headphones on Close my eyes and just listen to any closing thoughts that you guys want to share. Mark, why don't you start and Dean, you take us off into the sunset. A grave injustice occurred against Dean. Grave injustices and unfairness occur to people all the time. And you can say, well, you know, how can we take this and how can he get complete vindication? And you can dream of the steps that you would go through to win your case, to get free, to then you know, win some huge settlement right in the face of the cop who did this to you. That's like the movie Shawshank Redemption where he gets his revenge and, and everything turns out the way it should. In real life, that doesn't happen. It never happens the way it should, but in Dean's case, it did. And, you know, we sat in prison and talked about his wrongful conviction all the way back in 2003 and 2004, and it looked like such a long shot to get this overturned. And everything that should have happened to vindicate him just happened like a Hollywood story. And, it, and I'm so happy for him. I wish this, I wish other people who've had these wrongful convictions happen to them could have the Hollywood story play out the way it has. People always ask, what is the fix? What is the fix? I don't know that there's a fix. I feel like we need term limits on prosecutors. We need to figure out this system where a judge is put in place like the federal system because when you have a judge who's going to be on your television saying, I'm going to be tough on crime, he's already formulated an opinion. 
So he's biased to start with. I think that's a, a start in this, but um, we got other issues with this problem, and that is the folks who are in states that don't get compensated, they also don't get credit for Social Security. And that is a huge issue for folks who are going to have to work the rest of their life. We need to try to figure out a fix for that. I know it's uh, that, that's a huge undertaking and complicated thing, but we got to have compensation across America. Until then, we need to fix the Social Security so, so folks can not have to work their whole life because they spent time in prison and didn't pay in. And thank God for the Innocence Project. Thank God for Barry and Peter. You know, the projects all across America, and, and you know, I can't never say enough about Mark Gazi who saved my life and the, and the kids who work at our program with the University of Cincinnati Law School. Just, you know, support these organizations because this, this is still going on. This is still happening. The man just got out of Arizona with 53 years in. So this can't keep going. It can't keep happening. We've got to fix this problem. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.